Good morning. It's good to be with you today. If you would turn, if you have your Bibles, to Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 30. Uh, we're going to start a little bit differently than we normally do. I'm going to start with a little bit of audience, congregation, participation, okay? So we're going to have some, some pictures in a few moments that are going to be on the screen. And I want you to tell me what you know that person for, like one word. What, if one word could tell me how you know that person, what they're known for, I want you to, to just kind of just shout it out, okay? Um, and, and we're going to go through a couple people, and, and we'll see if we have some consensus on what these people are known for. All right, so let's see the first person that we have. It is Elvis, but what is Elvis known for? Music, okay. Music, all right. What's the next one we've got? Basketball, right? Michael Jordan played basketball. All right, what do we have next? All right, I knew that would be a little trickier. It's Mark Zuckerberg, and he created Facebook. So Facebook, right? That's what you think of. Okay, what's the next one? Apple, right? That's Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, right? I thought maybe some people might say iPhone or, or whatever it might be, but Apple, right? What's the next one we have? Okay, so, so we have a lot. This is what I wanted to happen. We have a lot more variety of answers. So that's Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? He was a bodybuilder. That's what he got famous for. And then he was a movie star, right? And then he was the governor of California. So there's a lot of different things you might know him for, okay? What else do we have? Okay, so here we have one with, with Will Smith that before a week or two ago, you probably would have said a name of a movie or, or a TV show that he's been on, but so there's a little side note, it's not really what we're talking about today, but how much what you're known for can change very quickly, okay? So be always aware of that, um, but okay, so he was known for a lot of things, but that changed recently. What's the last picture that we have? It's a mirror. I want you to think, take a few moments, if someone were to, to, to say one word to describe what your life is about. If someone were to put into a few words, you think maybe often uh, of a gravestone, what would be put on your gravestone? What it would people say your life is about? What would they say the, the purpose, the apparent purpose of your life is? What is the meaning of your life? Well, today we're going to look and see as we continue walking through Philippians to see what Paul said his life was about and then what he called the believers in Philippi for their life to be about. So with that, let's start reading in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 30. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now if I, have, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know I will, that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and the joy and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, 
that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Let's go to the Lord in prayer today. Father, we thank you for this day you've given us. We thank you for this time we can gather together. We thank you for your word that we can look to and see what you have for us, what you would teach us, what you would say to us this morning, how we can follow you more faithfully. Lord, and I pray that as we look at what our lives should be about, I pray that you would convict us, each and every one of us in our hearts, how we can follow you more closely. I pray that you would convict us of the ways that we don't follow you. And Father, I pray that if there are any here that don't know you this morning, that they would be convicted to follow you for the very first time today. God, be with us and help us to focus only on you during this, these next moments we have together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you remember, coming into this passage, where we last week talked about how Paul is in prison as he's writing this letter, how he's in chains for Christ. And he writes this letter. And immediately following this, saying that starting with verse, or verse 20 from last week, his eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but, but that now as always with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So coming directly from that, we see this. And we come into what, what appears to be not just from this passage, but, but with the passages that come before, almost a motto for Paul. We see almost a, a motto for him in his life. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think that's quite the statement there, right? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It almost invokes... In my mind, the statement that we, we all heard growing up in school that, that Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. He's saying very clearly that his life is about freedom, right? But Paul is saying something that's so much more important. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And, and with those words for me, he is saying that my life is about these things. If I'm going to live, it's about Christ. If I'm going to die, that really is gain. It's a motto for his life. And, and in the original language, in the original Greek text, it's even more emphatic, I think, than it comes across in the English translation because the word is is not there. Okay? He says, to live, Christ. To die, gain. It's very clear for him because he says, I want Christ to be honored in my body, whether by life or death. Because he says, well, to live, Christ. To die, gain. It doesn't matter to him. If I'm going to live, Christ. If I'm going to die, gain. So we're going to break down what this means today. We're going to go through this passage. And I think it's an understanding of these first two statements, to live is Christ, to die is gain, that we first need to turn to. So first we see, to live is Christ. 
And as I mentioned before, this seems to be a life motto of sorts for Paul. And and you can see it elsewhere in his letters as he writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I think this gives a pretty clear picture of what he means when he says to live Christ. Because the life that he used to live, the direction he was going, where he was persecuting Christians, throwing them in jail, depending on his own self-righteousness, that life had been ransomed, had been purchased because of what Christ had done. Because Christ loved him and gave himself for Paul. And so for him, the life he lives, he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. And we see in this very passage we've been looking at today that he goes on to explain a little bit about this living being for Christ, what it means for him. He says, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. We see that in verse 22. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. We're going to break this down as we go, if, if, he says the word, if I live on in the flesh, if, it's almost as though he's not sure about what he wants. He's not sure whether he'll continue in the flesh, and, and, and really I don't think he's overly concerned about whether he lives on in the flesh. But he says, if I live on in the flesh, that phrasing of that, I don't want you to miss it, makes it very clear of the way that Paul views death. Paul's view of death in this passage and other passages is very different from the way that we often look at death. Because he doesn't say, if I live, if I continue to live, he says what? If I continue to live on in the flesh. Paul's expectation of life is not tied to life in the flesh. His expectation of living and being a living being is not ending if his life in the flesh comes to an end. Okay? He says, if I live on in the flesh, death is only seen as a separating device between life in the flesh and life eternal. That is all that Paul views death as being, as as being an end of this life full of suffering and, and fruitful work that we must have in Christ and the eternal life which is to come in which Paul says is better. But if, if he lives on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. The purpose of Paul being in the flesh is so that he might work fruitfully. See, when he looks at this, his whole life is oriented around what is to come. Right? He says this already, to die, gain. So if I live in the flesh, if I am going to stay here, if I'm not going to realize that gain, there must be fruitful work for me. And one of the ways to, to kind of almost wrap this into our heads is the way that we look at retirement, right? The way we work in our lives towards retirement is this idea that we work and we put in all these hours, we put in all this effort so that at one day we can realize the gain of our retirement accounts, right? We work, we must work hard, we must put into, we must work so that we realize the gain. Now, we're going to look later how that's a very trivial pursuit. 
and how, how we really ought to look differently at the way we live this life. But in, in many ways, retirement, the enjoyment, the good, everything he's going to have that he will love in his life is ahead of him. There is nothing in Paul's life that he wants to hold on to other than fruitful work for Christ. Fruitful work for Christ. And we see him express this idea in Romans 6.22. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. The life that's free from sin, as Paul is and as I hope today that you are, that has been saved by Christ, free from sin, enslaved to God, to serve God, produces fruit while in the flesh. It produces fruit while in the flesh. And this is the same idea, the same idea of fruit we see from Jesus in Matthew 7, 17 through 20. In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. There is a clear picture throughout Scripture that a person that is in Christ will produce good fruit, fruitful work for the gospel, to live Christ. And that work, that life in Christ means fruitful work, which means producing fruit for the kingdom of God. The two ways we see this fruitful work take place in Paul's life is how he expressed in this passage, to live as a servant of of Christ, faithfully engaging in the work of the gospel. His, his life wasn't just that he wrote letters. He traveled and shared the gospel to those who knew, did not know Christ. He encouraged those that he had shared the gospel with, becoming like and living as an example of Christ to the Word. So if we want to see fruit in our life, how do we see it? Through sharing the gospel, the fruit of the seeds we plant of the gospel. That's fruit that we should have. There should be fruit. We, we talked before how the vast majority of Christians have never led anyone to Christ. That's not how it should be. We ought to have fruit from the way that we share the gospel, or at least the attempt, the fruit of, of sharing the gospel with others. So that's one way we produce fruit, sharing the gospel with others. But we also produce spiritual fruit through the righteousness that we grow in by becoming like Christ. Christians should turn away from their sin, what they've been saved from, and live righteous lives. There should be distinguishable things in your life that you can look to and say, I used to, but now I. I used to do this. I used to go and do these things and, and, and have these sinful things in my life, but now I live for Christ. There are all these places in, in Scripture that we see we are called to do that. The other thing we see that Paul says in living being Christ is to serve others, to serve his brothers and sisters in Christ. He says that it is necessary for your sake, right? In verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I'm persuaded of this, I know I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul sees part of his mission, part of what he's called to is taking what God has shown him, taking what God has invested in him and giving that to others, 
to investing in the growth of believers. You see, Paul's at a point in his life where he realizes that, that death is not very far from where he will, he will be in life. He, he's considering the reality of death. Now, when people are younger, oftentimes they don't like to think about death. They don't like to think about the end of, of this life. It's not a very comforting thing to think about. And when we become confronted with that, usually it's a pretty big ordeal. It can change our life. It can change us on a new course of action. Well, When Paul considers his death, he realizes that while it might be better and while he might enjoy the, the, the relief and the joy that comes with death, he's going to stay for the sake of the believers. And this is a, a very, there is no retirement for the Christian believer. And what I say that, it doesn't mean that you don't, you, you can't retire from your job, you can't have a place where you're not working in, in a secular field or in the, in the world any longer. But in the church, if you live Christ, and part of that is investing the life that you've lived, the things that Christ has shown you, back into others. The way that you do that changes through the years, but you should continually seek to invest your life into other people and to serve others for the progress in the faith, because Paul wanted to, to show them, to help them to grow in their faith. We invest ourselves in the lives of others to help them grow in the faith and for their joy in the faith. We've talked numerous times about how we should fellowship and have joy and love among one another. And as we remain believers, we come together, we, we encourage, we produce joy with one another. As we see the gospel advance, and as we see the one who, and as the believers here see the one who led them to the Lord return to them. I want you to think about that for a moment. If you have people that have meant something to you in Christ, if you have people who have invested in your life, take the time to thank them for that, to, to, to express your gratitude, to, to express your care and your love for what they've done for you. I, I, doubt, I, know, I have no doubt that many of you can think of people that were your Sunday school teachers or people that taught you at VBS or were your youth leaders or, high, or adult Sunday school leaders or a person that cared for you in a hard time. These people were doing what Paul was doing for the Philippians. They were investing in you. They were making their life be about Christ. And in through that, they were blessing you and informing you for your progress and for your joy. And so make their joy complete in a way by sharing the fruit of what their work has done in your life. That's, that's a beautiful thing if you're able to do that. But this idea, this idea of to live being Christ is only possible when we understand that to die is gain. Right? The idea of life being about Christ is only possible when we understand that to die is gain. And we see this here as we look in this passage. In, in verse 23, I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So the first two words says, I long. Paul really wants to depart and be with Christ. And again, notice the language that Paul's using. He longs to depart. He didn't say, I long for life to end. He didn't say, I long to die. He longs to leave this life for the next. Paul does not speak of death as a final thing whatsoever. The way that he 
views and approaches life in this life and the next is as a cohesive way of understanding things. I think too often the way that we talk about life and death separate things for people. They make it hard to believe that we should live for Christ because we talk about life as though this is all there is. Paul, in the way he talks about death, makes it clear that he believes that death is not the end. He longs to depart and be with Christ. This gives clear credence to the idea that we are present with Christ upon death. We also often think about the man on the cross in Luke 23, 43, when Jesus tells him, and he said to him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. There is a reality that when this life, when we are absent from this life, when this life comes to an end, life with Christ begins. We are with Christ. We are enjoying, and as Jesus says, we are in paradise, which is far better. The clear statement that being with Christ is better than what is in this life. And we've talked and we've seen and we'll see again that suffering is a part of this life. Suffering that just naturally happens, suffering that is because of our faith in Christ, but suffering is a reality of this life. And, and we have clear, the clear promise that the, the life that comes with Christ doesn't have suffering. That all of the worries and the, the desires and the cares of this world are gone and we get to enjoy God forever. Death is not the end. Through God, we have the promise of eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. Eternity. Can you grasp, have you tried to grasp the concept of eternity? I want you to think of the most impossibly long task the most impossible long task, whatever you may be thinking in your mind, what came to my mind is I want you to think about having to go, and I've, I've, I've heard this as an expression of it, if you go and you take a cup of water from the Atlantic Ocean, and you walk to the Pacific Ocean, and you empty that cup into the Pacific Ocean, and then you walk back, and when you've emptied the Atlantic into the Pacific, eternity would have just begun. Can you think about that? Well, which imagine and understand the, the hilarity of that because if you're emptying the Atlantic, eventually it's going to make its way back there, right? But that's the reality. There is no end. There is no end to the life that we will have with God. It is in a better place than you can possibly imagine. I want you to think of the most wonderful place you can imagine. For me, I think about the time when I was on a, on a road trip with my friends, we went to Yosemite and we were going on a hike and I, I went off the trail and, and there was this massive rock. I couldn't see the trail anymore. I couldn't see people and I couldn't hear anything. All I could hear and see was this massive, beautiful waterfall just crashing in front of me. And I could just, it was so peaceful, so serene. I was just in awe of who God was that he created this beauty that was around me. The, the beauty and the glory of heaven is so far past that. I want you to think of in your life, what is your happy place, right? If you were to create heaven, often people talk about a place where they could maybe go play golf all day or, or streets, but you can't comprehend what awaits us. 
the best thing you can imagine only scratches the surface, doesn't even scratch the surface of what we will enjoy for eternity, the presence of God. There's probably been times in your life where you maybe have felt the presence of God in a real way, where you were just in awe of who He is and the love He has for you. That, that moment will be magnified to infinity and then constantly for all eternity. So the gain that is promised is so much better than anything that we can imagine. So in this passage, Paul is confident he will remain, but in a letter he wrote not terribly long after this one to, to, to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6, 6 through 8, we see Paul's understanding of the end of his life. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved His appearing. In this passage, we see the same language being used. The time for my departure is near. Right? In our passage, he says, I long to depart and be with Christ, but I know for your sake I'll remain. He's talking to Timothy. He says, I know the time for my departure is near. Again, there's, there is no hesitation. There is no, uh, there's no fear. There is no longing to remain. There's no prayer to ask God to extend his life. But he says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept, for, kept the faith, and now is reserved for me the crown of righteousness that's reserved for me, but not only me, but all who've loved His appearing. He knows that He lived His life for Christ. And now to die is His gain. To live in eternity with God. To, to receive the crown of righteousness that was purchased for Him with the blood of Christ. And the thing that I think we need to come to terms with today is that we should be so bold to approach death in this manner. That when we think about death, when we think about the end of our life coming near, we have no fear of death. I know, and I asked him about this when I, when I talked to him about it, but uh, when, I, when I saw Gary, uh, when he had his procedure recently, he was talking to me and he was talking about a procedure he'd had earlier in his life where he had to have, I think it was a triple bypass, and it was all of a sudden, and he didn't know, and the doctor said, hey, you know, this is a very dangerous procedure, and there's a possibility you might, you might not make it through the procedure, and, but if you don't have the procedure, you will definitely die. He said, well, it doesn't sound like I have much of a choice, but he said, well, you don't seem very afraid. He said, well, I know if I don't wake up from this, I'm in a better place. We should not have fear when we face death. doesn't mean we should be reckless or, or we shouldn't care for our life, right? God tells us our, our body is a temple. We should take care of ourselves. We should not uh, be foolish, but we shouldn't be afraid to lose it, especially if we're losing it on behalf of Christ. And again, I'm reminded of a story. It was one of, I think, one of the most impactful stories that I've heard, and I just have heard it relayed, but at one of the earliest Passion Conferences, talked about 
or John Piper was speaking, and he was talking about a, a young lady who was a missionary that went overseas to share the gospel, and she was killed. And people would say, oh, it was a tragedy. She was so young. She was so young, and she was killed. It's a tragedy. He says, that's not a tragedy. And he, he pulls out a copy of, of a Reader's Digest and talks about this couple that retired early so they could go and hunt shells for the rest of their life. Seashells. He says, that's a tragedy. It's a life that's wasted. It's spent in pursuit of temporary things and foolish things. Because if we believe to live as Christ and to die as gain, as Paul tells us in verse 27, we should live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. We should live a life worthy. So that's the final thing we see today, to live a life worthy. Again, we see here he prefaces it as citizens of heaven. He is talking in this life of our citizenship in heaven that we haven't even realized yet. Again, death is only a barrier from this life to the better life. There is no hesitation with him about death. And again, we see this idea in Hebrews 11.13. After it talks about these these men who believed God and, and they had their, their faith was counted to them as righteousness, it says, These all died in faith, although they had not received these, the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on earth. I don't know about you, but whenever I go on, on vacation, there comes a point when I'm kind of ready to be back home. Right? The, the, the fun and the, the beauty of being away from home is kind of worn off, and I'm just ready to get back to my bed. Right? When we look at our life here, we should look and, and feel uneasy. We should feel out of place because this world is not our home. As, as those that it talks about in Hebrews, we are foreigners and temporary residents on earth. This is a hotel that we're living in at the moment. And we are going back to our home. One day when this life ends, the next life begins. And what we've done here should be in service to that life. Live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should live holy and righteous lives, seeking to be holy because God is holy. There are numerous lists in Scripture of things we should not do as well as things that we should do. In one place, Paul says, put off the old self that had all of these things that you did and put on the new self that's marked by these things that you should do. We should live holy and righteous lives. This is not to be legalistic, but it is to be obedient. And he says we are to stand firm in one spirit, in one accord. The people of God should be unified by this common commonality of being in a foreign land. We all realize our citizenship is in heaven. To die is gain, and we are all out of place here. We're waiting to go home, and in one spirit, one accord, united by this common bond, contending together for the faith of the gospel. If we're going to be here, if we're going to believe what Christ has done, we should be proclaiming that, defending that to the world, because that is the hope of Jesus for the world. Only Christ 
can free people from the bondage that they are in. And, and do you realize that? That that's what it is? Sin is bondage. It's so, it's so tight of bondage that people don't even realize the bondage they're in. They don't realize what freedom in Christ is like. Not being frightened by your opponents, because we will certainly have opponents. If you proclaim Christ, if you proclaim the truth of Scripture, this morning in Sunday school I asked, oh, what do you think the reason that people they crucified Christ for, and the answer that was given is because He spoke the truth. If we speak the truth to a lost and dying world, we will have enemies. We will have opponents. It says that this will be, it's a sign of, of their, if we look here, it says, this is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, this is for God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Uh, upon the Philippians, the first Philippian believers, their first view of Christian faith was Paul being thrown in jail. And now he's writing this letter to them from jail. They have a very clear understanding that if they're going to follow Christ, they will have suffering in this world. And if we follow Christ, we too should have suffering in this world. Now, one of the questions I think we ought to ask is if we don't experience persecution because of Christ, are we living Christ loudly enough in our life? There's a story about John Wesley as he was kind of a, a horseback preacher. He'd go from town to town and he would preach the gospel because a lot of what people were living was a very re religious life and, and going to church and, and just doing things and, and not really... There were a lot of people that weren't saved, that didn't truly know Christ as their Savior. And he go, would go and preach the gospel. And there was a day where he realized that he hadn't been persecuted that day. It's a story that it's said about it. So he got, got off his horse, fell on his knees, and, and asked God to, to reveal any unrepentant sin in his life because he wasn't being persecuted because of Christ. And while he's in the middle of praying, there's a, a farmer nearby that, that recognizes him and begins to throw rocks at him. And he praises God, gets back on his horse, and continues to go on. I think if we, we look at this world and we look at what matters to this world, if we aren't experiencing persecution, we ought to consider how we should be more faithful. If it's so easy to be a Christian, why aren't we doing more? Why aren't we proclaiming Christ more in our life? Why aren't we being more obedient to Him? Because if the world that we look at and see is as sinful as it is, doesn't push back against the way we live our lives, there's a disconnect there. Either the world isn't as evil as we thought it was, or we aren't as Christ-like as we thought we were. Which of them do you think is true? I'll tell you, it's not the world being less evil. So we should suffer well. I think a lot of this and a lot of this disconnect comes to a mindset that has existed through time and has been expressed in various ways that is a major detractor from living a life worthy of Christ. When I was younger, uh, and I guess still today, I looked it up and they're still, they're still using this phrase, but it came about when I was kind of in middle school, high school. There was a term called YOLO. You ever heard of that term? You only live once. And really all that is is expressing a, a view in life that's been around since the beginning of time that has probably been called hedonism. Living life and seeking pleasure. Living your life and seeking pleasure. One of the oldest works of fiction, the Epic of Gilgamesh, has this advice that's given by one of the characters. Fill your belly, day and night make merry, let days be full of joy, dance and make music all night. 
These things alone are the concerns of men. Do what you want. Live the way you want. The first sin recorded is seeking one's pleasure and good above other things. The woman saw the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. And so she ate the fruit. Scripture vehemently denounces this that are, and denounces those who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But I, I think that part of the reason we have such a hard time living a life that's worthy is because this mindset is so prevalent in the culture we live in, and it's so sneaky about the way it infiltrates our own minds. And I think there's one cultural icon um, from the past 30 years or so that I feel encapsulates this mentality in a way that makes it even more dangerous. And that's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I don't know if you saw that movie. Where's a senior in high school who wants to have the most epic day of skipping school before he graduates. And the premise seems innocent enough, but it leads to a day of stealing his friend's car, dragging other people into it, and a lot of other shenanigans, only to end up safely back in bed before anyone's the wiser, even earning himself another day off because he was hot and sweaty and his parents felt so bad for him. The villain in this movie is the dean of students, Ed Rooney, who's looking to catch Bueller for truancy, though to be fair, he kind of does this in some very extreme ways, and he's not necessarily a good guy either. The whole attitude is a picture of having your cake and eating it too, to, to get the benefit of graduating, to, to get the benefit of having been at school and, and really having, of being sick, getting to stay home without actually being sick. The issue is not this mostly lighthearted comedy, but the attitude behind it. Shirk responsibility, do what you want, face no consequences. The temptation is for this to apply itself in our lives, this idea that we can coast along, ignore what we are clearly supposed to do, and that it'll all be okay in the end. That we can have a relationship with Christ and ignore all of the things we're supposed to do, and at the end of the day, it's going to be okay. To be sure, only Christ can save. We cannot earn our salvation. And that salvation is secure. We cannot lose that salvation by what we do. But the challenge we need to consider is whether this person is truly a believer in the first place, if they care nothing of following God. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. There is no shortcut to obedience. We are either working to do the will of the Father, or we are not. Bueller may have fooled his parents, and it's possible to fool other people, but we will not fool God. We cannot hope for eternal life, but then also live as though this life is all that we get. If you do not believe there is eternal life, this mindset of take what you get makes sense. If you don't believe there's anything after death, if death is final, of course it makes sense to do everything and anything that you want to do, no matter the cost. Why wouldn't you? When you die, it's over. But if you believe we have eternal life, we should live this life as though there is something to come. And as we see clearly that that something to come is far greater 
than anything we experience here. We have to make, be careful not to have this attitude of shirking responsibility, of, of doing less, of just trying to enjoy the end reward without being obedient. We have to, if, and if there's a part of you that's like, I don't want to be obedient, you should consider your relationship with Christ and consider, is it genuine? Do you, have you truly repented of your sin and believed in Christ and trusted Him for salvation? Because I think what's clear in Scripture is that we don't earn our salvation, but if we are saved, we will produce fruit. It's not that we get to heaven by doing the will of the Father, but if we are people who've been purchased by the blood of Christ, we will do the will of the Father because we are thankful for what He has done for us. So our attitude today must be that of Paul's. To live Christ, to die, gain. This morning, can you repeat as your motto for your life what Paul said? To live Christ, to die, gain. Earlier I asked you what people would say about you, what what they would say defines your life. If someone looks at you, can they see that? That your life is for Christ. Because you know that if you die, it's for your gain. Is that evident in your life? What would you be remembered for? Because we shouldn't fear death, but death comes for all people. And we never know when it will come. And we should live every moment of this life for Christ. Are you doing that? Are you being faithful? If you claim to be a Christian today, are you being faithful in the way that you live your life? Is it evident to those around you? Or this morning, do you know Christ? Do you have a relationship with Him? Are you prepared for death? Because death isn't, it shouldn't be scary. It's just a a step into a life that's better for the believer, but it's also eternal for the person who's not a believer. And everything Scripture says is not good if you don't know Christ. And and I'm not a person that wants to to bash people or or beat them over the head with the idea of, of hellfire and brimstone, but that is the reality of what awaits for a person who's lost. And that's not to scare you but to come into recognition of your own sin in your life, the the need for salvation, the need for salvation and what Christ has done for you, to repent and believe, and to enjoy the eternal salvation available because of what Jesus has done for you. So as we come to this time of invitation, can you say to live is Christ, to die is gain? Is that evident in your life to those around you? Or maybe today do you need to trust Him for the very first time to believe so that you may not perish but have eternal life. Let's stand together as we pray this morning. Father, I pray that as we come to this time of invitation, You would challenge each of us to reflect on how we follow You, whether we follow You well, whether we need to follow You more closely to convict us of the areas where our life is not a life that has been purchased, where our life is not worthy of the gospel of Christ, and to repent of that, to to follow you closely, to give everything we have to following you. And God, I pray that, that if any of us have 
trepidation of, of death and are fearful of death, that you would remove that because we know what comes is so much greater. And Father, I pray that if any don't know you today, that today would be the day of their salvation as they cry out to you and trust you for their salvation, to repent of their sins and to believe in the name of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.